Stay tuned for The Turning Point with Mike Fader. So I've been watching um, watching the World Cup soccer uh, the last couple of weeks, uh, mostly be- <clears throat> because my son is so into it. And he watched uh, the World Cup four years ago, and I started watching it then, and now I'm watching it this year. It's fascinating to me. The game itself, <clears throat> if you're used to American sports, um, it could be dull or boring sometimes if you're used to American sports. Uh, I'm not going to get into a whole like sports analysis here, but um, one thing that's fascinating about watching World Cup soccer is you, it's like watching the Olympics. It's exotic. You see people, fans, players from all over the world. And um, the other thing about World Cup soccer is uh, <clears throat> extreme nationalism, which is uh, in some ways good 
collectively, people get together in a country and back up their players. But uh, this nationalism, anything that has to do with nationalism these days in the world is scary, of course, um, for the obvious reasons. If you're paying attention to what's going on in the world, which I'm sure you are. <clears throat> the thing about the soccer, the game itself, is I, growing up in America and paying no attention to soccer whatsoever or football, as it's called in the rest of the world, I never realized how dirty it is. It is a really nasty, actually violent contact sport, and I never realized it before. And on top of that, um, there is more cheating going on in soccer than in any other sport that I've ever seen. Uh, in um, in hockey, it's like it's more like hockey than any other game. And in in American hockey games, there's something called diving, which is when a player these big, strong guys, right, uh, you know, very athletic. If somebody sort of touches them or hooks them a little bit with a hockey stick, they go flying, you know, and uh, the other guy gets a penalty called on him. And it's, uh, it helps the team if, uh, you know, if you, uh, if you draw a penalty. And in soccer, they do this all the time, which is almost comical after a while. I mean, somebody will sort of nudge somebody or touch somebody. Sometimes it's really, it really is vicious. But sometimes somebody will touch somebody with their foot or their shoulder and these very athletic guys will grab some body part <clears throat> and drop to the grass like they've been actually shot or hit with an axe. And then if the referee, it's funny, if the referee doesn't call a foul, they should have shake their heads and jump up and, and, and start running again. But um, there are, <clears throat> on each team, just like there is always in any group, uh, notorious bad guys. And... Uh, they have their own following. They have their own following. They're like enforcers. There's enforcers on any team in a way, especially contact sports, of course. Uh, <clears throat> and I'm watching, watching some of these, um, these bad guys. I was thinking, not just for that, just, but, but it's sort of set up and, and, and it, it reminded me of, uh, of something. And I've been reflecting on this for a while anyhow. It's an old habit I've had in my life which is much less in evidence than it used to be, is a fascination with bad guys. I think this is probably a fascination shared by a lot of Americans, probably humans in general, but definitely Americans, going back way back into the country's history. There's a, a morbid fascination <clears throat> and even admiration, I think, that Americans, or I should say European Americans, have for the loner, you know, the frontiersman, the loner, the outlaw. Um, this country, after it was originally settled, which is, when you think about it, settled is a sort of an inherently racist word. <clears throat> the country was originally settled by men and women who were either protesting the rules back in Europe or who were encouraged by the authorities because they insisted on practicing an unpopular religion or were expressing unpopular opinions or any opinions at all, they were encouraged to get lost. Go somewhere else if you don't like it here. And uh, basically America was colonized by people then who, who were inherently rebels and outcasts or at the very least people who were restless and couldn't abide the status quo, had more of the like what you would call oppositional and adventurous DNA in them than the average person where they came from. So it was sort of a selected out group of people who, who colonized and populated this country all along, all the way, probably up until including now, <clears throat> people who didn't want to remain or couldn't remain where they were. 
and they couldn't stand it. And a lot of people can't stand it, but a lot of people just stay where they are. But the people who who have the courage and the adventure and the need or the drive to go someplace new and try again, uh, that's what you get American. And for better or for worse, that's America, right? This constant uh, movement and expansion. <clears throat> when I was using the word, I mean, I used the word outlaw before. Uh, when you say outlaw, but that has <clears throat> different meaning. Sorry about all the clearing here. Um, but there's always the, the Robin Hood factor. You know what I mean? The Robin Hood factor. But I mean that in addition to making a life outside of civilization, quote unquote, and the old order of things, and not being told how to live their lives, there was always this justification of rebelling against monarchs and tyrants. This is very American too, right? I mean, we'd have no Fourth of July with, uh, you know, fabulous deals on cars and mattresses without that original gene of rebelliousness. In addition to this righteous rebellion against tyranny, though, there is this uncomfortable fact that in the USA there was, and still is, a blurry line, I think, between violence in a just cause and violence merely for its own sake or, or, or for the pursuit of greed. And you see this all the time. Um, as far as the enforcers of the law are concerned, the cop always lived on the margin of law and lawlessness, always. <coughs> I mean, certainly out in the, in the frontier, which we're, you know, we're familiar with by uh, history books and a lot of movies and TV shows, but out in the frontier, there was often very little difference between cold-blooded killers and outlaws, the worst outlaws, and the sheriffs and the marshals uh, who were empowered to arrest them or hunt them down. I mean, somebody like Wyatt Earp, a historical, actual person, uh, was a prime example. I mean, this guy was just, uh, you know, he just, the only thing that separated him from just uh, being um, a stone murderer was that he had a badge on most of the time. He was just a better, he was better at it than the bad guys. Uh, and true, you know, in human history, when all else fails and you need to catch a killer to deal uh, with, uh, with somebody, uh, you need to find somebody who's a worse killer. You want to find somebody who's a killer, who's out of control, then you find somebody who's even a worse killer than they are. And you find this person and you put a badge on them or you swear them in. And that's how you enforce uh, justice on a frontier or in a place where everything is out of control. Um, the army out west, talk about cops, the army out west after the Civil War, which was uh, charged with enforcing the movement of civilization. <laughs> the 7th Cavalry after the Civil War, under Custer and other generals, was notorious. They were stocked uh, with many, many drunks, criminals, and just plain killers, guys who had uh, fought in the Civil War and didn't know any other way to be and didn't want to be any other way keep the uniform, keep the gun. And uh, in this case, they get a free license to, um, to deal with the uh, savages. You know what I mean? The whole country had said to the, uh, to the American army out west, you're dealing with subhumans, with savages. You don't have to show them any kind of um, mercy. You don't have to show them any kind of compassion. No prisoners of war. Do whatever you want. And this attracted a certain kind of person, for sure. <clears throat> Just like sometimes uh, modern... Um, special groups uh, in the armed forces attract certain kinds of persons, especially if we're going to demean and devalue these people's value. I mean, if you're going to call people terrorists and uh, whatever else, then they don't deserve any, uh, any human treatment whatsoever, no matter who they are, even if they're associated with terrorists. 
And I think this whole truth about law enforcement, you know, that there's a blurry line between cops and criminals, I think it still applies. I mean, a lot of prosecutors and cops are applauded for their ability to out-criminal the criminals in order to track them down. I mean, there are plenty of movies and TV shows in the last couple of decades that make this very clear, and there's more of them all the time. It's kind of an increasing cultural uh, shift. It's been going on for a while, but it's it's really very clear now. I mean, inevitably, this practice goes too far. You like the CIA torturing suspects overseers, overseas, uh, you know, in these black camps. Although I'm sure there are millions of people who absolutely feel that these uh, CIA agents or the people that they were um, that they hired in other countries, you know, their, their contemporaries in other countries, were only doing what was necessary. You know, they were dealing with the worst kinds of uh, people, and they did whatever they needed to do. But. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, as far as applying this old British concept, this myth, really, of Robin Hood, take somebody like Jesse James, an American, uh, quote-unquote, not hero, but uh, anti-hero. What's the word for Jesse James? He was a bank robber and a killer. But according to American mythology, and probably some actual fact in the case of Jesse James, he was oppressed by unjust authority. Uh, But the question is, did Jesse James... And his gang robbed from the rich and give to the poor? Was, was he Robin Hood with his merry men? I don't think so. There's always been a need by people to justify a lot of outlaw behavior as merely doing what was necessary to get justice. Always. A really good, I think, really good and very deeply American tale of the wrongfully oppressed man, uh, victimized by the rich and powerful and violent in their own right, you know, the violent, powerful, rich people, you know, the, the heads of um, the mafia and, uh, you know, the corrupt people in government. A really great story about this is The Godfather, obviously. And there's a kind of Robin Hood theory here, a kind of Robin Hood story, getting back at the rich and powerful and uh, giving to the poor or to your own family, your deserving people, you know. The character <clears throat> of The Godfather is appealing to the American soul, I think. Really, it is. Uh, I'm not exempting myself either. America uh, being a land where the innocent and the downtrodden, or it used to be until recently, uh, a land where the innocent and the downtrodden can rise up in the world. And if they have to murder bad men to do it, so much the better. You get vengeance and justice all in one. Um, and I think <clears throat> there's a pro- there's a, there is a growing popular admiration these days, which I think I mentioned before, <clears throat> even hero worship of, of, of like special ops troops and various other American, um, you know, agents and uh, special, special soldiers who are often working outside the law to get the bad guys and, you know, on the way, trampling over any innocents who have the misfortune um, to get in their way uh, while they do it. I guess, like I mentioned before, Sometimes it is. It is absolutely necessary to fight conscienceless brutes with equal brutality to save the larger community. I mean, look at what it took to deal with the Nazis and the German army in World War II. Um, Even the good guys, you know, and that was the Americans and the British, the good guys, they bombed hundreds of thousands of innocent German civilians in the process. Uh, American uh, Air Force killed, um, more or less deliberately, 
uh, terror bombings. And this happened in Japan, too. Uh, they uh, <clears throat> bombed Tokyo, which was not a military target, and killed 100,000 people in one air raid. 100,000 men, women, and children, civilians. In Germany, uh, repeated bombings of major cities killed hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people. And um, this was what people in this country at the... The public approved of this, <clears throat> just like the public approved um, of the, in retrospect, uh, of the atomic bombings. You, that's what you do to people because this is, you know, their um, their government and their soldiers and their sailors and their army, they're evil, they're committing evil in the world, which they were, trying to take over the whole world, enslave the whole world, murder the whole world. How do you deal with these people? So this is what happens. I mean, you know, you go to extremes. Um, and our country has committed, you know, all kinds of uh, war crimes. Um, and there's a great capacity, I think, in this country for self-delusion. You might call it historical amnesia. Uh, and in our celebration these days, I never thought I'd see this again. After I lived long enough so that after Vietnam, uh, anything had to do with the military was looked down on. I mean, uh, was it because we, because we failed in Vietnam? And so uh, people didn't want to be, uh, didn't want anything to do with failure. You know, America always won all the time. We're number one, and we won all the time. We won on all battles. We were bigger and powerful, more powerful than anybody else. So there was a failure in Vietnam, and people didn't want it to be attached to it or even look at it. So the army was at its lowest. I mean, I said the army. I mean, the military was at its lowest ebb after Vietnam. And this lasted for many, many, many years, for I'd say a decade, uh, maybe two decades. And finally, with uh, people like um, <clears throat> uh, Reagan, you know, mourning in America, um, and uh, later on George Bush, and then after 9-11, the, um, the idea of the military, now the military is celebrated everywhere, uh, and everybody thanks everybody for their service without ever, I don't mean everybody, but, you know, people in America thank military people for their service. You watch a lot of uh, sports like I do, <clears throat> and you see all these people being celebrated. It's the veterans of the day, veterans of the year, you know. So it's great, but these, a lot of these people sacrifice. But you, people don't pay, although I have never seen, it's interesting when I think about, they celebrate veterans at uh, Met games or Yankee games. I don't think I've seen one from Vietnam, which is interesting. There are, people still have a mixed attitude about Vietnam. Uh, and of course, um, but you know, so it's World War II, and then later on, it's Iraq and, and um, Afghanistan veterans. Without regard, without regard to what we're actually doing over there and what happened. Um, but it is interesting, actually, that we don't celebrate um, Vietnam veterans so much. Um, uh, I don't know about, but of course, the the country is, uh, and I can only speak. It seems like sometimes I'm jumping and stomping on America all the time. This is where I live. It's where I grew up. It's a country I know about more than other countries in the world. And I'm sure a lot of the things that I'm mentioning here are the same. You know, it's human nature. They apply to a lot of cultures all over the world. Um, <clears throat> when it comes to Vietnam, though, um, historical amnesia takes over. Uh, so we're celebrating all things military and the, the wonderful tradition and the history of the military. And uh, we forgot about all the terrible war crimes in Vietnam. This is what happens, though. This is, um, this is the way it goes. <clears throat> as far as, uh, and the American West has always been fascinating. Uh, 
to people, at least back east, for all this um, this lone justice and vengeance, you know, which reflects a kind of a deeper individual um, desire in a lot of people, which is in some way, not to make a psychological thing, but it's almost like childlike or childish, this kind of infantile desire of rage and one getting even, which I understand very well. <laughs> um, so you got a lot of people who are out west who were selected or self-selected in some way, um, <clears throat> who were loners, who were, um, you know, who lived by their own code, they called it, what, frontier justice. And there was a lot of, um, <clears throat> a lot of people had guns out there, uh, guns being an American thing, right, being a very big thing. Um, and they uh, enforced their own codes. Everybody was their own, the law unto themselves. And there was a lot of um, <clears throat> sudden killing that went on in the name of getting even justice and, uh, you know, and, uh, <clears throat> and vengeance. D.H. Uh, Lawrence, actually, of all people, D.H. Lawrence lived in the, uh, in the American West for a couple of years in the 1920s. He lived on a ranch uh, donated to him by a rich American admirer in New Mexico. And I don't know. <clears throat> I don't know the complexity of D.H. Lawrence's feelings, uh, what you know, motivated him and his complex feelings. But he was not crazy about Americans, or at least Western Americans. And he had no praise, really, for what Americans had done with all their freedom. And here's a part of a quote from him on the subject of Americans. He says, um, the essential American soul is hard, isolate, stoic, and a killer. It has never melted. I'm going to have me some... Uh, I'm going to have me some... Um, you can hear it, right? This is sound effects. I'm going to have some throat coat tea because it's worse today than usual. <coughs> Why is that? I think it's because I've been in the air conditioning so much. I mean, I've had the air conditioner on five straight days. And it dries my throat out. Ah, that helps. But uh, so these ideas, these ideas, you know, justifying outlaw-like behavior because good men were driven to it, right? And the continuing deeply felt admiration of adventurers and tough guys, uh, which, as I mentioned before, includes obviously the fatal American love affair with guns and shooting. There are more guns, there are more guns owned by America, uh, by Americans than there are Americans. There are more guns in this country, legal and illegal, estimated, uh, <clears throat> owned by Americans than there are actual people in the country. That's how many guns there are here. And it's something like, you know, 95% higher than the, next, uh, than the next country where people own a lot of guns, which is Yemen, which is completely at war, civil war. <clears throat> but is that for a country that does not have a civil war at the moment, uh, and this is exempting... Uh, military guns and maybe even uh, police guns, you know, uh, police weapons. Over 300 and something, 370 million guns are estimated to be owned by Americans. And all this stuff, you know, outlaws and Robin Hood and, um, you know, the loner and the tough guys, special ops, troops, uh, American rangers in World War II, it's all part of our culture and history. And um, these are things that couldn't help but form the mind and heart of a boy, of any boy growing up in the 50s, like I did. 
<clears throat> I was always striving. When I was a kid, I was always striving very hard to be a good boy. It's the way I was taught, not just by uh, society and in school and the Boy Scouts. I was in the Boy Scouts. Yes, I was. I was even a leader of the Boy Scout troop. But also, uh, you know, I was striving to be a good boy because that's the way it was in my own small little world, in my family, it's the, way it, the way I needed to be for various reasons. <clears throat> and I, you know, I, when I, as an addendum, right, when I, think, when I think that we were taught in the 50s, little middle-class strivers that we all were, uh, we were taught crime does not pay. This was a big thing. I forget it was, I don't know who said this, right? Uh, but crime does not pay. We were all taught this, right? Crime doesn't, really? What a joke. I mean, look at the way the world is now. Uh, crime and uncivilized and nasty behavior pays off like 100 slot machines 24 hours a day. Crime obviously pays. But we were taught that way, right? That was uh, the civilization we lived in. Crime does not pay. Uh, but also there's crime all over the place. Uh, and when you read about, when you read true stories, uh, true historical <clears throat> Uh, versions of what cities were like, uh, what the underworld of various cities were like, and uh, the seamy side of politics, uh, you know, it was always crime. But uh, <clears throat> we were taught that crime doesn't pay. But also, of course, uh, it's not a new <clears throat> observation in this country that also that nice guys finish last. Remember hearing that? If you're of a certain age, nice guys finish last. And supposedly... It was hard-boiled criminals that said that. Uh, but now it seems to be, I'd say, a generally assumed national understanding that nice guys uh, finish last and uh, guys who, uh, who just act out and do what they want, say what they want, look at our president, <clears throat> they finish first. And this is the lesson of Trump's presidency, the final enduring uh, breaking out into the open, no secret anymore, a lesson about America, that um, nice guys finish last and uh, crime actually does pay. Pays off big. But back then, back in the day, when I was an innocent kid in the ignorant, very nice 50s, it was all about being a good person. You followed the rules. You were a law-abiding citizen. You were a good family man. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> all the sitcoms we watched on TV, which is when they really got to be popular, millions, tens of millions of people watched these sitcoms. And they were sort of both, these sitcoms were both like what you would call reflections of and creators of, at the same time, American culture. These sitcoms were about families with hardworking, nice guys, always, loyal, good wives, and all-American nice kids. Mostly they were white and Christian, like most of the country. And back in the day there, um, and straight through into the 60s and 70s, a lot of it, uh, if you were a Latino or you were black or maybe any other minority, uh, you didn't exist on television, which is where American life was reflected, right? You didn't exist. Anyhow, <clears throat> to, so to, 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 for me to be a good American back, back then and a law-abiding member of my own family, I was always trying to be nice or to do the right thing. Or I was deliberately, I would deliberately underrate and downplay my own needs and desires in the vain, turned out, the vain hope of getting approval and love from, from those people who were above me, who ruled my life. 
And these people <clears throat> were definitely not giving love away for free. Uh, just because I was their child or grandchild or nephew, no. You didn't get any of what Carl Rogers, the uh, psychologist, called in his wonderful phrase, unconditional positive regard. Unconditional positive regard. Uh, <clears throat> I should put some honey in that. Oh, there, there is honey in that. Unconditional positive regard. That's what my daughter, my, my daughter is visiting uh, with my granddaughter, who's a year and a half years old. She's so cute. And... Um, very confident and uh, very trusting and lovable. And uh, why is this? And loving. Because of what she gets in the first place. She gets unconditional positive regard. My daughter gives this to my granddaughter all the time. And it's a beautiful thing to watch. Beautiful thing. <clears throat> in my family, which was run by my grandmother, the matriarch, and backed up by my mother and my aunt who lived next door, I learned, uh, my mother with me, my aunt next door, I learned that, that, that men, according to them, were essentially, uh, they almost said it outright, but uh, their attitude was very clear. <clears throat> men were essentially disgusting. They were dirty and sloppy and vulgar. They did nasty things, and including having sex, which was the nastiest thing that men did or wanted. And, uh, yuck, right? I mean, it was disgusting. This is what I learned from these women. And the best thing that a good boy could do was not grow up to be a man. And if you had to do that, you should try to keep it to yourself. <clears throat> the prime examples in my family, the prime examples of what a man should be like were my uncle who lived next door and my grandfather who lived a couple of blocks away. They were basically um, good boys. They were good boys, the both of them which in my families it just simply meant that they did whatever the women told them to do. That's what made them good boys. They were actually, and the thing about my uncle and my grandfather, um, here, let me tell you. <laughs> the thing about my uncle and my grandfather, who you never met, obviously, uh, if I had pictures, I'd hold them up so you could see them. And you could see that in the nice guys. They actually were nice guys. They were. They were decent men. And they were good examples to follow. Hardworking, good providers, Decent men, men. But I didn't see any of that because when, when I was growing up, I just felt um, contempt for them because they were essentially servants of the women in my family. I needed more extreme behavior. And of course, <clears throat> when it came to extreme behavior, there was my father, the great adventurer, the worst bad boy there was, according to my censorious and essentially, as I said, man-hating grandmother. She hated my father. He, would, uh, he was loud. He was big. He could be tough. He would do, and he did what he liked. He didn't pay attention to the rules, especially he didn't do what my grandmother told him to do, which was the original sin, you know, the, the violation of the first commandment in my family. And, um, of course, the more she denounced his behavior, him, you know, just taking off and going all over the world and doing what he felt like doing, the more she denounced him, the more I idolized him. So <clears throat> I was the nice little boy, the good kid, until at a certain point, I was about 14 or 15, which is when a lot of teenagers start to rebel, I gave up trying to be nice. Um, but uh, I didn't have the courage to be as bad as I felt I needed or wanted to be. That was the key there. But actually, stepping back a little bit here, I had developed a nasty streak before my teenage rebellion years. 
when I was about eight or nine years old, I was leading a kind of double life. I was still trying to be a good boy in the house, but outside in the backyard, I was developing into nothing but a petty tyrant and a killer, at least of insects. <laughs> I mean, I would go outside in the backyard. <clears throat> I'd step on bumblebees with my sneakers and, you know, kill them. Step them on, step on in the grass when they were sort of idling along, minding their own business. I burned ants. I mean, I was a sadistic little bastard. I would just sit there for an hour and burn ants with a lighted, um, it was an incense stick, which we called a punk. And I would uh, uh, search for every beetle I could find and smack them, get rid of them. Disgusting, right? I mean, it's disgusting. And the worst kind of karma, I suppose, but... uh, it makes pure psychological sense. Not an excuse, but it makes pure psychological sense. In the house, I was being stepped on and burned on a fairly daily basis. So I found the only smaller creatures around to victimize. And I was the tyrant of my one-eighth of an acre little world out there in the back. Added to this added to this was the fact that I was a shrimp. I was an extreme shrimp. I was smaller and skinnier than most boys my age. In fact, smaller than a lot of the girls as well. In elementary school, I was more like a mouse than a regular kid. I was afraid of everything. But, um, and, but this, is, this is something here. Based on my own experience and observation <clears throat> and the way I grew up and the way I was, people who spend most of their time being stepped on and burned and generally being afraid are also filled with the worst kind of rage. And if they ever get power, it's bad news for anybody under them. And you could look at our uh, current president for verification of that. Uh, Want a little water? I ran out of tea. I'll have some water. I know. I should have um, a throat replacement. They don't do throat replacements, do they? Heart replacements, yes. But not throat replacements. Anyhow. Um, And I was speaking before about, uh, I know I'm all over the map today. I was speaking before about this great ambivalence, um, um, and I had a tremendous ambivalence, which was particularly, I shared this with cops that I knew in my life later on. As I was saying before, often the very people who were filled with urges to violence and other crime, other crimes, uh, compelled to want to do, you know, what's called criminal or dangerous things, <clears throat> people who are, who are driven or want to at least break the rules and violate laws, often these people become law enforcement officers and spend their lives tracking down bad guys. Um, They're consumed with an unrelenting desire to eliminate crime and criminals. Um, Same kind of thing you see with uh, all these hellfire preachers, you know, uh, who see the devil everywhere. Uh, In fact, when I was growing up, I wanted to be a detective. I wanted to track down bad guys or bring them to justice. Guys like my missing father who had abandoned the family uh, I would track him down no matter where he tried to run and make him pay for his crime. I mean, later on, I actually became a probation officer. And um, I worked in um, Brooklyn Family Court, Brooklyn Criminal Court, then New York State Supreme Court. And that was the, the height of it. I recommended sentences. My job was to rec- investigate <clears throat> and recommend sentences for the worst kinds of men, drug dealers, thieves, uh, guys who spent their lives terrorizing other people, you know, um, and, I, and, you know, phone book-sized records of assault, sexual molestation, rape, murder. And um, I think any romantic notions that, um, that I had about bad boys disappeared um, 
you know, uh, after I did that job for a couple of years, and what really did it was interviewing the victims, right? Um, <clears throat> anyhow. Uh, but when I was a kid, you know, I was still basically uh, uh, trying to be a good boy. And the worst thing I ever did when I was in my rebellion years, the worst thing I was ever guilty of was not doing my homework, right? Uh, being snide to teachers, uh, talking in class. That was me, like a world-class criminal, right? Um, uh, what I basically was a world-class case of passive aggression. And, and, you know, stripped of all the craziness, I suspect that I actually was a good boy, a decent human being. But uh, this is the way it all worked out. And so probably, inevitably, I was always attracted when I was a kid and later on, too, to bad boys, the aggressors, the juvenile delinquents, breakers of the rules, the outlaws. And what did I want from them? To be bad myself. Yes. Not in fantasy, but actually in reality, right? I mean, there was one kid I knew. I'm not sure when I first ran into him. He lived three blocks away. This kid was having sex with girls since he was 13. He later smoked cigarettes at a young age. He even smoked pot and went into Greenwich Village in Manhattan. He went to jazz clubs. He drank. I didn't even like this guy, but that, that wasn't the point. The point was that he broke all the rules and did all sorts of things I wanted to do, or at least I thought I wanted to do. And my mother for, forbade me to see him, but it didn't stop me, right? Um, here's the interesting thing about my relationship with this guy, though. Although I liked to hang around with him because of the way he was, when it came right down to it, I couldn't bring myself to actually do the things he did. I don't know. I guess that's fear, cowardice. I mean, I always had a terrible conscience. I always felt like God or my grandmother, which is much the same thing to me, uh, and was, was watching me all the time and would punish me if I did anything wrong. <clears throat> so I lived in a kind of a strange world where I was always putting myself in the way of sin but never committing sin myself. Um, when I got older, when I got older, let's say I was now in my 20s, I attached myself to another even worse bad guy, a bad boy, right? a guy who worked with me uh, in the probation department. His name was Mike. <clears throat> and this guy, he sold drugs. In fact, he made so much money from, from selling drugs over the years that he actually bought a brownstone in the village. That's how much money he made uh, selling drugs. Um, <clears throat> and he was a big guy. Mike was a big guy with a black belt in karate. And he was filled with a kind of reckless menace and total disregard for the rules, this guy. I don't know why he wound up in the probation department. Maybe he figured out a way to make money out of it. Or maybe he needed a regular law-abiding job as a cover-up for his drug business. I don't know why, but there he was. In our, at our office, where we both worked in Brooklyn, he was always getting in trouble, Mike. Uh, he didn't file reports. He let guys on his caseload go without reporting to him. Uh, really bad guys, too. Um, <clears throat> he thought all authority was a joke and that the straight life was for suckers. And I, still being the good boy, doing a good job as a probation officer, thought he was very cool. That's right, I did. I spent time with him. I would go over to his, um, to his loft in the village where he lived with his girlfriend, a British woman, a very pretty British woman. I used to go to his place and watch him mix and weigh and package uh, coke and marijuana. Let me just sit there. I mean, it never dawned on me that if the cops came in, you know, I would be just as guilty as he was. Um, never dawned on me, of course, because uh, I was stupid and I was attracted to this kind of life, the outlaw life. Um, and I would have gone off for 20 years, too. Didn't, my excuses would have been uh, meaningless to the authorities, but uh, I did it anyhow. 
<clears throat> and I'll tell you, the worst thing I did with this guy, and this is a true story, I helped him kidnap his own son. Yeah. It, his six-year-old son lived with his junkie ex-wife in the village. And one time I drove him in my car uh, over to, uh, to park across the street from her building, and we, we were sort of doing surveillance. We'd watch for her to come in and out. Um, <clears throat> and one time I saw her come out of the building with a very sweet-looking little boy, uh, tall like Mike was, tall for his age, and Mike ducked down in the back seat. And it turned out that all this was a part of a plan he was working out. He couldn't get custody of the, custody of the boy, uh, though he had been to court. Uh, maybe that's why he had a straight job. So he planned to pick up uh, his son one day after school, take him to England to live with his girlfriend in Nottingham, where she lived, her hometown. <clears throat> and I helped him. And what happens, one afternoon I call in sick to work. This is the way it developed. I picked him up at his apartment, and he was with his son. And he was carrying, you know, a couple of suitcases. His girlfriend had already gone back home. She didn't want any part of this crime, I guess. Maybe she had more brains than he did. Probably she did. Uh, we drove to the airport, and we were looking out for cops the whole way, um, looking over our shoulders. And I was uh, scared the whole time, but, you know, I wanted to help him. I dropped him off at the airport, and I drove back home. And when I was back in my apartment in Brooklyn, I realized only then what a stupid and destructive thing I did. I didn't know anything about this kid. I didn't know whether he wanted to be with his father or not. I was acting in my own, uh, <clears throat> my own you know, fog of self-delusion and psychological twist. I, uh, I'm sure, when I think back on it now, that I was influenced by the fact that a father, any father, would rescue his son from a horrible mother. That was what was going on, I thought. And I, of course, I had wished my father a hundred thousand times had kidnapped me when I was little, rescued me from my mother, but he never did. I visited this guy, Mike, um, <clears throat> a few months later in England. Uh, his son had been sent back home by then because the authorities went and just took him back. But eventually with this guy, I fell out with him, basically over the way he treated his girlfriend, who he was mean to, and even, uh, I think, sometimes violent. I had a big crush on her anyhow, but I didn't like the way he treated people, and it sort of dawned on me he wasn't such a nice guy. Imagine that. <laughs> even finally I realized that. <clears throat> Bad guys. And even into my 30s, despite my attitude towards bad guys after the probation department, uh, I was still, you know, finding situations in which uh, I was getting together with bad guys. And when I first opened my bookstore in Park Slope, um, there was a guy in my neighborhood named Carl, and he walked into my bookstore about two months after I opened the store. This guy was a scary monster. He was about six seven. He weighed maybe 280 pounds, really. And he had salt and pepper short haircut, uh, almost like a crew cut, like an army cut. And he had these kind of colorless wolf's eyes and scars all over his face. He was really something. I had seen this guy around the neighborhood uh, for a couple of years. He was uh, pointed out to me by some other people. Apparently, he was a super of a building and also a bouncer at a nightclub uh, in Brooklyn. The story about him, about Carl, was that he had been a cop and had been thrown off the force. Apparently, he was in uh, uniform one day working outside the Plaza Hotel uh, when there was some dignitaries holding a, a big meeting at the hotel. And he told some chauffeur of a limousine to move his car. The guy gave him some lip, and Carl broke the guy's jaw. And what this guy Carl used to do is the first time he walked into my store, um, 
<clears throat> you know, scary as he was, he's got a package. He unwraps his package and throws um, a leather-bound, uh, a sort of flexible leather-bound old-looking book on my desk. This is old and used books, right? And um, he said, uh, what do you think about this? His big rough voice he had. And I look at this and I look through it and I'm holding in my hand something I had only seen in museums or read about in books. It was the actual journal of a pirate from the 18th century. And I'm looking at this thing in my hands and I could see the entries. I knew enough about, about what this uh, life was like or about history and about books, certainly. This guy says, uh, what do you think this is worth? And I said, I don't know. It's priceless. And I, and, I, and I sort of put it back in the bag that he had dropped on the desk, too. And I handed it back to him like it was, you know, burning me. Because I, I, I knew instantly that this was stolen. That's what this guy did in the neighborhood. He was a fence. He, whenever there was a big robbery somewhere, like you could read about it in the papers, like in Manhattan, <clears throat> Carl would come strolling into my store with like a 15th century Dutch painting, you know, uh, a small one, you know, like uh, oil on board or something. He said, what do you think this is worth? And I said, man, don't bring this stuff in here anymore. I don't want to have anything to do with this. But Carl took a liking to me. Uh, maybe he understood that I had this sneaking admiration for people like him, still being a good boy, basically. And um, he uh, used to tell me stories about his life in crime, finally just admitted it. Talk about robberies, talk about uh, stuff he had sold. And he would, uh, one time, and finally I just, you know, I mean, I went along with this too. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't such a good boy. I wasn't such a Boy Scout. When I wanted a color TV once, I asked Carl to get me one. So he brings me one. He brings me a color TV and he says, give, give me $100 for this because I like you. It was a gigantic color TV. So obviously stolen, right? And he adjusted it and worked, you know, got it working for me. Another time, somebody tried to break into uh, the apartment I was living in. So I asked Carl for a gun. Who else would I ask? And he, he brings a gun over. He said, 25 bucks. And it's, um, he's, uh, you know, he brings over a 9mm automatic and loads it and hands it to me. So, uh, Bad guys, you know? And there was another guy in Park Slope, too. Um, he was a tenant in a building I had when I was a landlord. This guy had been in Vietnam. And when you look at this guy and you talk to him for a while, you could see he was inherently <clears throat> like an angel. He was a very sweet guy, but also another big, another big, very threatening-looking guy in some ways because of his experience in Vietnam. He had been traumatized over in Vietnam. And he spent a lot of his time... Um, uh, he had a rifle in the apartment, and he spent a lot of his time cleaning it, aiming it, and uh, talking in this kind of paranoid way about how you had to watch out for people. This guy was, he was so full of, um, of violence, this guy, uh, that he brought over Vietnam, that he caught like an infection. Uh, and I knew another guy who was a friend of his from back when they were kids. And um, he told me that this guy had always been an angel. He had been a sweet little boy in Catholic school. He had been a choir boy. Uh, what's it called? An altar boy. He's an altar boy. And um, he was um, considered just generally lovable. And once he went over to Vietnam, um, and he was in the um, 82nd Airborne over there. Uh, <clears throat> and I used to go places with this guy. And uh, we'd walk into like a museum. And he, was so, he radiated such danger and violence. Um, um, that the museum guards used to follow us around from room to room. And they would actually sort of look at us like, maybe you should leave, you know. Um, 
Well, now I'm old and not what I'd say wiser, but I'm at least aware of the reasons I was drawn to bad guys. And as I've gotten older and seen so many bad people in action, including at the top of American society, top, you know, and government, I can see clearly that it's not all black and white. It's not all good and bad, like I always thought my whole life. Robin Hood and the Sheriff of Nottingham. That's all bad guys and good guys. I don't find myself uh, drawn, as I was in childhood and my 20s, uh, to people who break rules just for the sake of doing it. I'm not drawn to people like that anymore. I don't, I don't admire or I'm not attracted to people who treat other people like objects to consume for their own pleasure, who, who hurt other people and never give it a thought. Uh, but this is still America. This is uh, a country, more than ever, steeped in its own mythology and violence. I live in this country. Now look who's the president. Look who's the president. The opposite um, of the boy who chopped down the cherry tree, right, George Washington. Um, and remember George Washington, so he was remorseful and he confessed the crime to his father. Now we, have, now we have the bad boy and his gang of bad boys and girls running the show. Never thought we'd see that, right? Millions of people, millions of people admire Trump for the very things that we have been taught in churches, in schools, in our families. Um, they admire him. Uh, and not so secretly, for his crimes, his frauds and insults and lies and abuse of women and children. Um, for sure, for sure, Trump can't be confused except through a fog of fear, bigotry, and ignorance. Trump cannot be confused with Robin Hood. He spent his life robbing the poor or the less well-off and making himself rich. Um, and now he's doing it to the country. Well, that was my attraction to bad boys. And... Uh, <clears throat> I don't really have that anymore, but uh, it's something I had all my life, and maybe it's something other people share. Robin Hood, Robin Hood, riding through the glen. Robin Hood, Robin Hood, with his band of men. Feared by the bad, loved by the good. Lightning, heavy metal thunder, 
to be wild. Well, I wasn't born to be wild. I was born to be mild, except on the radio. (laughs) Anyhow, this has been Mike Fader. If you want to get in touch with me, go to my website, uh, Fader Files, F-E-D-E-R-F-I-L-E-S dot com. Or don't go there. You think I care? I'm tough. I don't care. Anyhow, thanks for listening. Well, it's all right Riding around in the breeze Well, it's all right If you live the life you please Well, it's all right Doing the best you can Well, it's all right As long as you lend a hand You can sit around and wait For the phone to ring Waiting for someone to tell